This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. I'm your host, Lisa Colon DeLay, and today we have a special guest, Drew Jackson, on, and he will be sharing some of his poetry collections with us. Drew Jackson is the founding pastor of Hope East Village in New York City. He writes poetry at the intersection of justice, peace, and contemplation. With a passion to contribute toward a more just and whole world, he and his wife have twin daughters. And they have recently moved to Brooklyn. They don't live in Lower Manhattan anymore. <laughs> so, Drew, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Lisa. It's so good to be on. The first book you wrote is called God Speaks Through Wombs, Poems on God's Unexpected Coming, and a portion of which goes this way. But God speaks through wombs, birthing prophetic utterances. Enough of this unbelieving religion that masquerades as faith. Divine favor is placed on what we have disgraced. This came out in 2021, and you explore the first eight chapters of Luke's gospel in New Poetic Register, as as the description goes. Maybe you can get us acquainted with a little bit of what you're up to, and then in that poetry collection, and then this second one, Touch the Earth, Poems on the Way, kind of proceeds from there. Yeah, so in the first book, um, I wrote it. Uh, I started writing it at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was it was really a way for me to just explore what was going on in my interior landscape, but also everything that's going on in our world um, from obviously the the pandemic, um, but also racial violence and all of the conversation around that. And I just wanted to. Um, be in conversation with some folks who I knew uh, understood what it felt like to live on the underside of empire and navigate that. And so I'm bringing my whole self as a, as a Black man into conversation uh, with the text of the Gospel of Luke, and specifically Luke, because Luke is uh, very intentional about centering marginalized voices in his narrative. And so I just wanted to be in conversation with, with them as I'm, you know, trying to figure out what it looks like to navigate uh, the landscape of American empire and, and all of that. And so um, these poems come out of that conversation. And uh, so I'd love to to share uh, a poem. I, I mean, even the one that you quoted from, it's, it's from the, the poem, God Speaks Through Wombs. And so I'll share that poem. And uh, each each poem is in conversation with a particular a verse or set of verses within the gospel of Luke. And so this one uh, comes from Luke 1, 5 through 25, which is the text where um, Elizabeth finds out that she's going to be giving birth to John. God speaks through wombs. 
In the days of empires and puppet regimes, God speaks. Through wombs rested and discarded because they were unviable, this is what they do. The Romes, the Babylons, the USAs, the men, tossed to the side as detritus what they've deemed unfit to be utilized. But God speaks through wombs, birthing prophetic utterances. The object of public scorn, given the power to name the happenings of the Lord, Elizabeth is her name. Say her name. It is she who will be the one through whom the covenant is kept. She, like a priestess, speaks her word while the leading male voices are shut. Enough of this unbelieving religion that masquerades as faith. Divine favor is placed on what we have disgraced. That's powerful. Thank you. The attention to to Elizabeth, to somebody who would be discarded like an older woman who's barren, who mm-hmm. is nothing, maybe to to a husband who wants progeny or powerful people. Mm-hmm. It really does speak to um, who God values versus who we tend to value or who people tend to typically value. Yeah. I wanted to mention that what what's it so interesting about your poetry and how you decide to you're unfolding Luke in a new way. And I'll, I'll read a bit. It says, these are declarative poems, faithfully proclaiming the gospel story in all its liberative power. Here are the gospel is fresh words that speak of things impossible. And what you're doing is, is really beautifully guiding us through scripture verse by verse. What I love about it so much is this kind of poetic interpretation that is so close to the text, but is really drawing out all these flavors of it Mm. and helping us not just gloss over material that we might think we know, think we're used to pulling out in depth some of these things. Yeah. And um, I think with, with this, uh, poem in particular. Yeah, I, I really wanted to right, I'm talking about the story with Elizabeth, but there's there's so much else that's happening. And I think it really sets up um what Luke is doing in the whole of his gospel narrative of taking like telling the story through the lens of those who have been pushed to the margins and centering them again. They're they're the ones who actually need to be telling the story. And rewriting the whole narrative that says, um, you know, if you are, if you are privileged, uh, if you are centered, then you're blessed. Then God's favor must rest on you. And it's no, actually, um, the ones who are the the marginalized and the lowly and the rejected, that's where you find God, right? That's where that's where you locate the voice of God. Are we listening to those voices? And, and so I love that the gospel opens up with the story of Elizabeth and then moves right into Mary. And, the, you know, it's it's obviously something's happening here. And the question is, are we listening? Are we listening? Mm-hmm. Yes. God is going to provide salvation 
through the least, the least of these, the people we don't expect, but that's the salvation. That's where it's coming. And that's the good news. Yeah. Yeah. We might not expect that we might disregard people. I mean, we will tend to disregard people, you know, we'll tend to admire people who seem to have achieved or look up to people who seem to have different qualities than like an older woman who's barren. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, not seemingly like an important person in this bigger story. Mm -hmm. But as it begins with her, it's really unlikely that she would get pregnant. And then, as you mentioned, her husband is silenced. Somebody who is really important is a priest, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. really important, can't say a word. There's a lot there. I mean, that's one of those poems you can read and read, and you could get different things he's reading. Yeah, yeah. Any other poems from the first book that you'd like to pull out for us? Yeah, uh, there's another one that, that I'll share. And this one is called The Waters of My Weeping. And I wrote this one in conversation with Luke 3, Luke 3, verse 20. And this is where it's a, it's a small verse that when we, like, if you were to read it in the narrative, you, it's sort of just like, okay, this is just advancing the narrative along, but it really caught me. It's the, it's the mm -hmm. verse where Jesus finds out that his cousin, John has been arrested. And so I'll read it. And we can talk about it a little bit, but this one is called The Waters of My Weeping. One of my brothers, my cousins, added to the number of your incarcerated masses, one in three of us. Unarmed, yes. A threat, yes. To your abuse of power, and the way you sit so comfortably in your palace while we struggle to eat out in these streets. But in this hour, I weep. Again. For this innocent man baptized into your carceral system. Immersed into this jail with no bail. I am forced to witness this unholy sacrament. This state-sponsored religious act. And for what? Something about his person disturbed you. Maybe by passing him through these waters, you will convert him to the faith of unsacred silence, one way or another. I'm sorry that it frightens you when we fight for our humanity, but tonight I cry. These tears have become my food. I dip myself in the pool of the waters of my weeping. For my brother. For my cousin. For all of us. Until they stop locking us up. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Goes without saying that this isn't just about the past. This isn't just about Luke. And mm -hmm. this isn't just about the story of Jesus, but our story today, our condition today and injustice and mass incarceration and broken evil systems that harm the most vulnerable and the most powerless without a voice. And as you 
voice these laments and cries you know these are it is a, a kind of a weeping you know is a a way to express this but it's also a way to draw attention to it yeah it's so important and it is so troubling obviously there's so many emotions at the same time that are so deep and powerful and and the temptation for people who aren't directly affected is to look away or say well that's not exactly my problem or something like that that's what's so powerful about the gospel is that it forces you to say this is your problem mm -hmm. anything that's unjust anything that is causing pain to another human being is your family is yeah. causing pain to you do you want to unpack any of that yeah so i mean i think on on the surface right this is um as i'm dealing with the the text of luke 3 i just wanted to reckon with the humanity of jesus in this moment where jesus finds out that his cousin has been arrested and so we don't often stop to think about, okay, what is that like for Jesus to find out that his cousin has been arrested by the authorities um, and that this isn't something that would have been a one-off for Jesus. This is something that he would have been familiar with of his friends and neighbors and family members being arrested by the state, you know? Yeah. And, and so, um, I think just to sort of get inside of that moment, and I was taken to a, a particular moment in my own life. So I used to work with um, college students in college ministry. And when I was living out in LA, we took a group of Black students, Black men away on a retreat. And uh, we wanted to make it intergenerational. And so I, my dad flew out, my father-in-law flew out. Um, we, we had, you know, just a group of, of black men together for a weekend and we celebrated, we just shared space. It was a beautiful time. Um, but one of the things we wanted to do was also create some space for lament. And we asked, as we we're all together, we just asked the simple question of how many of you in here know someone right now who is in the prison system and every single person in the room raised their hand. And as we sat there and we looked around, grown men just started weeping. Mm. And it was just this moment of us to sit with how deeply this reality has affected us, is affecting us. And um, at the beginning of the poem in that first stanza, I quote that statistic, uh, I say one in three of us, right? Which is a reference mm. to that statistic um, that one out of every three black men between the ages of 18 and 35 are in the prison system, right? And so you hear a statistic like that and you can either respond and you can say, wow, something must be really wrong with black people. They must be criminals. Or you can hear that and you can say, something is deathly wrong with this system or something's not right. And I think that's the only choice you have when you hear something like that, especially when you hear it in comparison with that statistic compared to white men of the same, the same age is one out of every 100. Like what goes into that? 
right? Why is that the case? And then you look at the numbers of how much the U.S. incarcerates, the rate at which they incarcerate people, in comparison to everybody else in the world. It's astronomical. And you can say, what is going on here that we just love to throw people behind bars and particularly people of color, black people, like what is going on? So it's just getting inside of that as more than just the statistic of it, but the humanity of it and say, no, this is affecting families and real people, people that I know, people in my family, people that I love. And it doesn't just affect the person who's on the inside. It affects the whole family. You're right. So whole families are carrying this reality. And so, yeah, this poem is just sitting with the, the tears of that, the grief of that. And making the declaration that like, no, God knows this pain too. God is intimately acquainted with what this pain is. It's carnage designed like that on purpose, mm. generational, and it affects generations. And it's, this empire solution in this country, just like it was an empire solution in, in the past of this is how we punish what we have deemed unworthy and undignified because it's a, it's a racist system mm -hmm. and, and it's based, you know, it's based on preferences of who gets to have what, yeah. what's interesting to me, what's maybe even the most disturbing to me in the time of Jesus, which I have to struggle with this. How do you struggle with this? I'd love to know. I want Jesus to break his cousin out of jail. <laughs> but out of jail. Yeah. Like yeah. what, what are you, you're raising dead people. Yeah. Can't you get him out of jail? He doesn't visit him. Yes. He doesn't. I guess he does send him word, but I, I get, I gotten a little upset about that. Yeah. It's just kind of how it is. And he, it's grieving to him. Yeah. But he doesn't change his plight. Obviously, there's a bigger stuff going on. There's a bigger mission going on, and he's yeah. healing people and he's going to die and stuff. Yeah. But I can't help but find that pretty disturbing. Yeah. I think that's real, to be honest. And I think that that's exactly what John felt. <laughs> you know, to, yeah. I mean, yeah. when, when John is frustrated, yeah. Um, that that gets back to Jesus. That John is frustrated, and then it's like, yeah. okay, you're you are the one who I believe to be Messiah. Who, with that comes this declaration that you are going to set the captives free. I'm literally behind bars right now. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? That's yeah. so awkward. And so I think that that's just real and it's human. Um, and you know, I could try to explain it. I mean, I can make, I can theologically, I can make sense of, okay, what, what Jesus might be trying to do on a bigger picture. But I think to immediately go there is also to miss the reality of like, this is also the present reality of God. I believe you are liberator. You've shown that in the past, mm -hmm. but my people are still locked up. What's going on? Why don't you change this? Why don't you change this system? Why don't you change? I mean, I, I think we can say that about that particular thing, but we can say that about the reality of all sorts of violence that we experience and death that we experience and all of these things that God has promised to bring transformation to. And it's like, but why are we still experiencing this if this is who you say you are? And I think we sit with, we sit mm. with that 
And then we also wrestle with the fact that, and this is where to me, I get, I get into the, the theological piece of it is to say that the invitation I believe that we're given as those who follow in this way is not to say, okay, God, you said you're going to do this. Let's snap, snap your fingers and do it. But the invitation is you be the ones who do the liberating along with me. I've given you my spirit. Go do the work. Do the work of making things new with me. Go do the work of being peacemakers, shalom makers, justice bringers. It's we are entrusted with something, right? We're given the the creativity and the power of the spirit, right? We're we're called to that. And and so I think that it's an it's an invitation to say, all right, what does that mean then for us collectively? to begin to reimagine a more just world where prisons don't need to exist, right? Where this violence isn't happening. And so it is the invitation to say, come follow me in this way. Let's make something more beautiful together. Jesus is asking us to change our ways and to follow. If Jesus were to wave a wand or say, you know, abracadabra, things are different. We wouldn't be spiritually informed. We couldn't change the world. A situation might change, but it wouldn't mean anything yes. else changed. And I think that's that's a hard pill to swallow because we want to be relieved mm-hmm. of our suffering. We want our friends and family to be relieved, yeah. obviously. But to remake the world is yeah. work and involves our change of ourselves, too. I've been thinking a lot about this, how we live in a hateful, cruel world, but how we are also hateful and cruel Mm. to ourselves. It's an inside job, right? So we have to think of ourselves as worthy of true love and kindness to ourselves and not be our own enemies, right? Yeah. I mean- Out of there. Yeah. It's so good. And I think so much of really what Jesus was trying to do was to really give us a brand new imagination. I mean, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of Mm. God and that's his core primary message, And he says, you have to, in order to inherit this kingdom, you have to become like children. I think so much a part of that is is that we actually need a brand new imagination to even believe that a new world is possible, that something more beautiful is possible, and to build toward that together. That's spirit work right there. Because we get so set in, in the, this is all there is and this is all there ever will be. And it's so easy to be resigned to that. But Jesus was painting a new picture and inviting us to imagine that with him. And um, I think mm-hmm. that's the that's the deep work um, that has to happen bef- even before we can do the work is we have to have the imagination for something else. This is the place of the arts, right? Mm-hmm. Poetry and, and music and theater and um, dance and and all the things that involve that help us uh, ignite mm-hmm. our imagination to bigger things beyond beyond our smaller stories. But also, it helps us hold intention without these weird binaries of I can only think yeah. happy thoughts or I'm, I'm stuck in all my sad thoughts. There can be a, a whole complex of very difficult things held together in, in one thing without. A yes. cognitive dissonance where like, yes, this is horrible. And, <laughs> and also this isn't yeah. the end of the story. Because when a series of 
horrendous things happen, for instance, in community, or on the news, or in our lives, we could just be like smacked to yeah. the ground and really not sense any imagination mm -hmm. anymore. And I think the spirit can, you know, in, in, in our arts and invigorate us with being able to have the space to hold all of the contradicting mm -hmm. emotions and thoughts. The better we get at holding space for it, hopefully the better we can do at healing the world because it's the, one of those things where like we can't go by thinking, hey, don't worry about the bad yeah. stuff. You know what? It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's like people are truly, their hearts yes. are just shredded with yeah. grief. <laughs> you know, mm. um, we can't put a blind eye on that. Absolutely. I, I mean, one of the images that I hold um, is, uh, and this Paul actually gives this image in 1 Corinthians 10. He says that, and he's talking about the church and the body of Christ at this point. He says that we are those on whom the ends of the ages have met. And, and it's an interesting image, but what he's saying is that like, we are to be people who stand at the hinge point of history, of time, who have one foot in the old order of death and violence, pain that is passing away, one foot in the new age to come. And we stand at the tension point between those two without resolving them, but we hold them both. We hold them both together. And so we, we both have the loudest lament we feel. And mm -hmm. there's this imagination and this hope. It's the, I've been to the mountaintop. I've glimpsed the promised land, even though I may not get there with you. Right. I'm not there yet. We're not there yet, but I've glimpsed it. So I proclaim it but yet I still feel everything that's happening in the Valley. You know, it's that, yeah. I don't know that everybody has the giftedness for that. They can mm. maybe shine a light for people yeah. to come toward it. Uh, what, what do you do to sustain, are there spiritual practices or mentors or ways that you sustain your vitality to keep those two in tension? In yourself yeah I, I mean well poetry is one of them for sure uh both the reading of poetry and the writing of poetry um are spiritual practice for me before they're anything I, I discovered that i needed practice that was spacious enough to hold questions uh to not just give me a whole bunch of answers that i mean we're, we're facing so much like cosmic upheaval and uncertainty and all of those sorts of things. And to just be given these pat answers, it's like, I don't, I don't need that. None of us need that, even though we might feel like we do and we might feel like it gives us something to hold on to. There's something about a practice that allows us to just bring the questions and to stand in the mystery without the need to resolve everything. And poetry has become that for me. And so just um, being able to to sit and to wrestle and to ask questions and to imagine like poetry is this, has space enough for all of those things. And uh, so that, that was definitely one. Another one for me has just been the practice of centering prayer, sitting in a space of silence and stillness mm -hmm. as the, the, the thoughts and the, all of the things arise in that space of silence, not attaching to them, um, not, not letting myself mm -hmm. spiral into, whatever thing, but just being present. 
and knowing that beyond all of the the thoughts that dominate my my heart and mind throughout the course of a day there's a there's a deeper reality a deeper presence that is always present mm. that i want to be present to want to learn to be present to so there's something that is grounding about that and and invites me back to a new sort of imagination to say oh there is there is something that is both bigger and more intimate at the same time than all of the stuff that wants to dominate my my mind and heart in any given moment. I knew you were a contemplative Jew. I knew it. I sensed it. it. Yeah. So centering prayer. So for people who aren't familiar with that, like and they, their mind is addled as it would be when you're attached to social media and, and there's these 24 hour news cycles where, it's basically habituated us into kind of become ADHD personalities. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's by design. I think it's, it's how we stay on these apps and everything. Mm-hmm. Jumping into something like centering down, centering prayer, something like that could feel like, you know, breathing underwater for some people. I've had developed a practice over some years, but what would you tell someone who doesn't really understand what you're talking about? How to do it, how yeah. to start. Oh. Yeah, it is. It's, it is, uh, it's one of those practices that's not, I mean, it's prayer beyond words is what it is. It's, it's pure presence is how I like to describe it. It's just being present to the presence of God, to, you know, myself, all just, and just allowing myself to simply be. And that is hard. It is. It's it's not something that comes easy, right? And so if you were going to just start to to engage this practice, you know, usually uh someone who's starting would start maybe with 2 minutes, a minute to 2 minutes of just saying I'm going to sit in intentional silence and stillness. Um time it, right? And, and just say, okay, I'm going to enter into this be conscious of my breath. And uh, I always say that uh, that your breath becomes your prayer in that moment because you, the, the ancient rabbis used to talk about how the, the name of God is meant to mimic our breathing pattern that Yahweh, right? That, and so even that in and of itself is a reminder that God is nearer to us than the very breath that we breathe. And so our breath draws us back to that presence, right? And so just learning to pay attention to that. So just take a minute or two and begin to build a practice over time. And then you can increase that time um, to five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, right? I, I, um, I try to practice 20 minutes in the morning and on a good day, 20 minutes midday uh, to just pause and be still and sort of return to my center, be reminded of who I am. Uh, and it, but it's one, it's a practice that the fruit of that practice isn't necessarily that I'm going to hear something amazing during that time or the fruit of it shows up in your life mm-hmm. as you're able increasingly to be more present with yourself and others, mm-hmm. more non anxious mm-hmm. in how you show up in the world, mm-hmm. um, not attaching to the thoughts and just spiraling into the rabbit holes of our own thoughts, mm-hmm. all of those sorts of things. So, Okay, so for you listeners who don't 
know about centering prayer if Drew has said he does 20 minutes and then another 20 minutes. I I, I, I tried. <laughs> Goodness gracious, that is impressive. <laughs> because it's essentially like centering prayer is kind of the opposite of scrolling. In scrolling through Instagram mm. or something, you're fed dopamine hits, dopamine hits, novelty, 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 novelty. And then you end up very restless and very kind of a little frenetic, a little woozy. And then in centering prayer, it's like you're it's like a process of elimination. You're drawing back down. You could start with your breath because it's this constant rhythm and it's very simple and it takes you to very a very simplistic place where there's no distractions, hopefully. And so you're really getting a lot of benefit from this simplification instead of this addition, which is like what scrolling is. Now I'm kind of understanding why your poetry is so juicy and so incredible is because you're drawing from this big, deep well that you've created as a practice of really being with the presence of God and really deeply knowing yourself from a centered place. This is kind of rare in our culture, I would say mm -hmm. quite rare because it takes so much doing to separate yourself and create time for that. That is an encouragement for anybody who's a creative person or a person who uh, needs to communicate for a living or part of their work. I would say that having these kinds of practices like you're describing is how you keep your life, you know, how you mm. make it well with your soul because you will be so sucked dry <laughs> in the regular world. You will be squeezed dry and wrung out without this kind of presence of God meeting you in regular everyday ways. Mm -hmm. I guess we could move on to touch the earth. It's described <laughs> as it's a continuation of, of the first book, part protest poetry, part biblical commentary, the rest of the story of the gospel and all its liberative power. This collection helps hear the hum of deliverance against all hope that has been the gospel all along. It's very, very powerful poems in here, not unlike the other book, but I think with some with some different things coming through, mm -hmm. maybe you could set the stage for it a little. Yeah. So this one is similar in that it's still in conversation with Luke. So this is in conversation with chapters nine through 24 through the end. What makes it different is that there is a change in what happens in Luke and in chapter nine, you get Jesus turning and facing Jerusalem and heading on the way toward Jerusalem. And you get much more about what it means to sort of be on the way with Jesus, mm -hmm. right? So um, right at the beginning of Luke nine is Jesus sending out his disciples for the first time to go and to begin to teach and do what he's been teaching them all along. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's, there's much more of, I would say, myself shows up in these poems okay. uh, because I felt like I needed to start to sort of be like, get inside more of my, like, what does it mean for me personally to be on the way? Like, what is, what does that look like? And what does it look like when all the things that, you know, Jesus has been teaching me about love and mm -hmm 
grief and faith and justice and like what does it feel like and sound like when that those things come to earth touch the ground get in the dirt get real and, and so that's what what's where these poems come from what would you like to share with us so i'll share the opening poem um called touch the earth and this one is in conversation with Luke 9, 1 and 2, which is, like I said, where Jesus is sending out his disciples for the first time. And so, yeah, I'd love to talk about this one, but it's it's called Touch the Earth. My father says more with his hands than he does with his lips. I cannot recall him sitting me down to teach me about love, but I watched him tend to my mother as cancer spread through her insides. He cried when her breath left her, though he never lectured me about grief. I am still grieving my mother, still gleaning what my father taught me. Gather it from memory, let it touch the earth. So this poem, is about my dad and which this whole book is dedicated to him. Um, and I say in the dedication uh, that he is the person who taught me that faith is more than talk. Right? Mm -hmm. So my, my first book is dedicated to my mom. My mom passed away be 10 years ago in March mm -hmm. and she was a powerhouse. She was, she was the one who would sit me down and teach me. Like she, she was my teacher. She was like, I think I say in the first book, like she was my rabbi really. And, and so my dad was, he's, he's, he's still, he's still with us. Uh, he's much more quiet, um, but he, and it didn't really set in until much later on that my dad's way of teaching me was by living it out in front of me. And, um, I saw my dad, the way that my dad loved my mother and mm -hmm. the way that he cared for her when she was sick, um, the way that he grieved her when she passed. Mm -hmm. And I, I learned so much from just watching him uh, and s still am. Mm -hmm. And so I just, as I was thinking about that and what, what it means to be on the way and what discipleship means and all of those sorts of things, it's like, you know, Jesus did both. Jesus taught his disciples, like taught them scripture and taught them parables and all of those things. Mm -hmm. But so much of his time with them was just living and them observing him live. And, and so, um, yeah, I just kind of put myself in that space of saying, okay, like, I've been watch. I've I've had the privilege of watching my father live for all these years. Mm. What does it mean for me to gather from memory, like I say, all of the things that I've been being taught over the years, and bring them to touch the earth in my own life, in mm. my family, as I you know as I live. What does that look like? And so, um, yeah, that's that's where this poem is emerging from. Um, yeah. Well, it makes me want to ask you then about your own role as a father. Mm. What's your style like, or how do you see your influences playing into how you are as a parent? Yeah. 
Well, I my temperament's a lot like my dad. I am he's he's a pretty even keeled person. Um and so I I just yeah, I can't get away from that. That's just part of who I am. Um but I would say that you know, I am I do carry a lot of my mom in that, you know, she we're both teachers and so with my daughters like and my wife, she's she's so. My wife Janae is incredible. She's the she like is so good at those on the fly conversations. Where so in New York, like we we walk everywhere. Or we'll take the train, and our girls. So I have twin daughters. They're eight years old, and so it's a it's such a joy to raise them in New York because honestly, they just see everything that's that is a part of living in New York, yeah. and the conversations that emerge out of that are so rich mm. and um, Janae is so good at those sorts of like in the moment conversations where the girls will ask a question. Of, I mean, they'll ask questions like, cause they're observers and they'll say, why is this building over? Why is that building over there have ramps, but this one doesn't. Mm. And so they're asking questions about accessibility. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's this whole conversation about, you know, accessibility and what that means. And, and, and so my wife's really good at those conversations. She, she defers to me on the conversations that are very like the, the girls are trying to process their own emotions and they, uh-huh. they, they can't get through the, the tears and like what's going on. And, and so there's a, she always says, you have you have a patience that I don't have wow. with them in those particular moments oh. to just sit and to sort of let whatever wants to emerge, emerge and to, oh. you know, ask good questions. And the, and so so we're a very good team in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think that there's this. Um, I don't know, we have our own our own style, but I see my parents, how they formed me in both of those ways of just, even just showing up and being present with the girls and not having to say anything. Yeah. Um, that's one That's one thing, but then also being able to talk through things mm-hmm. um, with them that was much more my mom than my dad. Mm-hmm. I see that showing up in me too. Mm. Yeah. And just, just that your girls can have whatever emotions they have. You know, um, to know that a parent isn't threatened by emotion or worried or you just have your emotions, you know, um, they're all fine. You know. That's a, uh, since they were probably three years old, one of the practices, we talk about practices that we do with them every night before bed is we, we uh, all go around and we share one thing throughout the day that we have were feeling mm-hmm. right and so that's a space to share the emotional space and like you can elaborate on that but you don't have to mm-hmm. um and one thing that you're thankful for and so mm-hmm. so this is this practice of naming emotions and feelings is something that we wanted to be intentional about teaching them to say mm-hmm. yeah this is this is something that we want to create space for that is okay um, even if you're the, the, you know, when you say, you know, my feeling today was sad or my feeling today was angry. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's okay. Why, why was that? Mm-hmm. And for, for us to have a practice of sharing that and naming that and giving voice, yeah. um, 
has been really has been really good one, not just for them, but for all of us. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, just just knowing that you have a safe place within your home, that your parents are a safe place to be the person that you are, is was just one of these invaluable gifts that is so stabilizing for a kid. You know, it's just so stabilizing, and that's such a gift mm. because you're that's part of this unseen legacy that we don't know how we're going to pass on to our mm -hmm. kids, you know, what their lives are going to be like in 20 years, what your girl's lives are going to be like, but those moments of instilling even just a sense of self for them that I have these emotions and tricky, they come and emotions come and go and I'm still okay. Mm -hmm. I have worth of dignity and I have, sometimes I feel a little crazy. Sometimes I feel happy or whatever it is that, 100% good, 100% okay, yeah. and I'm still loved, and I'm, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just a human being. <laughs> mm -hmm. Complicated. And to know that, that they are loved and cared for, how many ripples out that will be in their life, but then all the lives that they touch. Mm, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. It's it's really blessed my heart. I wanted to give you time to, to express anything about anything else in the book or anything else uh, that you'd like to before we wrap up and then beyond that where listeners can connect with you. So, yes, I guess I'll share, I'll share two. Um, and these are toward the end of the book. Um, yeah. I want to share this one. Uh, just a, as I've been sitting with everything that's been going on um, in the world in our country uh, with the brutal murder of Tyree Nichols, um, the hands of law enforcement. Um, I, yeah, I've just been, I think poetry is, as always for me, is just this place where stuff comes forward, where I can have the space to wrestle with different things. And, um, you know, I, I, I've been wrestling both with the, the reality of it. Um, that is, it's just, there's, it's almost as if there's nothing more to say. Like I, it, like we've been, we've been saying the same thing over and over and over and over. And, and so I don't know, I think poetry is the only way that I can, mm. <laughs> at this point, say anything. Mm. And um, so this poem is a poem about the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's called Spectacle. Mm. And it's wrestling with the realities of the spectacle of crucifixion, lynching, the complicity of the church in such things in how we just watch. And so, yeah, this one's called Spectacle and it, it has a, an epigraph before the poem, um, a quote from James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And he says, in the lynching era between 1880 to 1940, white Christians lynched nearly 5,000 black men and women 
in a manner with obvious echoes of the Roman crucifixion of Jesus. Yet these quote unquote Christians did not see the irony or contradiction in their actions. Spectacle. I don't know what is more jarring that these spectacles were turned into postcards or that they took place in the front yard of the church. There is an image that haunts me, a sea of white faces posing for a photograph, smiling, laughing. One man points his bony finger at the lynched bodies with an obvious look on his face that says, this is what will happen to you too. It pains me to say this, but I see myself in the man hanging on the right. He looks like he could be my relative. Maybe the other man does as well, but I can hardly tell given how disfigured he appears. And I imagine that this happened after dinner on the grounds, after the sound of the old rugged cross faded into the night. I'm going to read the next poem as well. And the next poem is called Saturday. And so this is just reflecting on Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. And this poem also has an epigraph from Cornell West, uh, Hope on a Tightrope. And he says, Black folks have been lo locked into that long Saturday after Good Friday. We ain't had Easter yet. All we have is each other and the promise of Easter, the promise of freedom. Saturday, liminal space betwixt and between when all I can see is loss. I toss and turn in bed. I dread what tomorrow may hold. I was told that gain is coming, that after the rain, the sun will shine. But my mind can only conceive of death. It is all we have ever known. Thank you. Yeah. And so those two poems just are holding space for me right now, I think. To just be okay with sitting in the Saturday of the moment. Right. Um, the day of the tomb. The Saturday, yeah. there's no feeling of death and feeling of no hope and nothing to look forward to because you don't know what's coming and there doesn't seem to be any resurrection isn't a reality yet yeah deliverance isn't a reality it's been promised mm -hmm. like we talked about before the promise is there yeah hang in there but not not coming through yeah so um yeah, I just I, I just wanted to give voice to those um, in light of just all that we're sitting with, um, you know, the shooting in Monterey Park, uh, the shootings. I mean, there have been several. There's too many to name. It's just that's our reality. So, yeah, uh, I think it's it's important for us to create the space to to 
voice the rage um, and to create space for lament together and to not move on too quickly to business as usual. So to really allow the grief to sink as deeply as it needs to go and to truly be as sad as we're living through a horror and doesn't have to be like that. We have a culture of death and horror. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, it literally goes against God and God's plan and way for us Yeah. in the complete opposite direction. And it's like, how are we going to be happy about that? Mm. I think it, it is uncomfortable it's just like losing a loved one and grieving them and you know people yeah. don't know what to tell you you know because it's horrible and mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable to sit there but when we can do it more together instead of isolated it, it helps a little with the sting but it doesn't make it go away i think one of the things we're the worst at because we have a death dealing culture mm. is to pretend we don't have a death dealing culture yeah absolutely um, think, oh, it's not so bad. It's let's move on. It's like, let's move on to the next massacre is what's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen yeah. in a couple days or next week. It's coming. I know it's yeah. coming. We all yeah. know. And that's where we um, hopefully gather our strength together to withstand it. But um, the reality is, is that we're living through a time of horror and death. And mm -hmm. that is not something people should get comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I thank you so much for these poems. Um, I know that it costs you something to make them. Yeah. It costs you something to be a black man in this world, in this America, obviously. Mm. And I'm just honored that you would share some of those with us. Well, thank you for, for giving me the, the space to share them. And um, I feel like, especially in light of our conversation and the invitation to sort of hold the two realities in tension with each other, I, I want to, as we, as we end, I want to share this poem as an invitation to not move past everything that we just talked about but to hold it in tension with this other reality that is just as, if not more real, right? That, that is, that we also are living inside of. And so this last one is called Under the Ground. And this is about the resurrection. And there's a quote before this one from Dr. Barbara Holmes' book, Race in the Cosmos. And she says, in the beginning, there is darkness. It is the womb out of which we are born. In this state of trusting refuge, the light of divine revelation, which pierces but does not castigate the darkness, may finally be seen. This is a mothering darkness that nurses its offspring. Under the ground. Life is always happening underground. The place light has forsaken. Finite minds cannot take in that the belly of Mother Earth is indeed 
a womb. Entombed in the soil is the pip of a new Eden. Only the seed that has fallen into the pit can burst through into the morning dew to announce to weeping eyes that a new day has risen. A day in which the voices and stories of women are believed, their word received as good news. And the men have no problem following them and learning how to believe again. What I mean is this. The world has been flipped on its head. Heaven has invaded hell, the spell of death is broken, and the doorway open to a new way of being. It all begins with seeing that the darkness of our world is luminous, and in the humus of life is where we become fully human. Thank you so much. Can you please tell listeners where are places that they can connect with you online? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on Instagram, D Jackson Poetics, uh, Twitter, same same name, D Jackson Poetics, mm-hmm. and um, you can you know, my website is drewejackson.com, and uh, you can find the books wherever you get your books. No matter where we are in our life, or where we stand in society, there's have to mobilize towards justice, social action, rooted though, as Drew shows us, rooted in contemplative way and centering prayer and being familiar with the presence of God in a rich way. So um, thank you so much for modeling that and, and showing us the way. Drew, I really appreciate your work. Thank you, Lisa. It's been so good to be in conversation with you. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.